Jesus put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in its field, and it's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown, it's the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then reburied. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and caught fish of every kind. When it was full, they drew it ashore, sat down, and put the good into baskets, but threw out the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all this? They answered, yes. <laughs> And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a household who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Here ends the gospel reading. You may be seated. I'm just going to take a minute and say a few words of introduction and thanks at the beginning here. Um, it is a real joy to get to be with you in this role today while Pastor Mark is on sabbatical. And I want to say a word of just thanks and affirmation to Pastor Kogan, who has been doing an incredible job of offering leadership, uh, setting everything up. It's, it's a gift that we have him with us. Um, some of you know our family's story with Cross of Grace, and some of you probably don't. I graduated from New Pal High School in... 1996. <laughs> Just kidding, 96. I'm proud of it. And began a sojourn in some other places. My first husband and I were United Methodist pastors. We had three children while we were in South Carolina. And then he became ill. And after three years of failed cancer treatments, we came back to New Pal to regroup and kind of fall on the mercy of my parents' care. So when our Indiana United Methodist friends started finding out that we were coming to New Pal, they all said, hey, if you're going to be in New Palestine, only they totally said it New Palestine, but we'll give them a break. They said, if you're going to be in New Palestine, you have to go to Cross of Grace. And in fact, one pastor said, oh my gosh, you've got to go to Mark's church because he's our Manny. Your which, we asked, your what? Our Manny. We take him to Haiti with us, and he watches our kids. So it's like he's a nanny, only he's Mark, so he's our manny. So we washed up on the shore of Cross of Grace with Mark the manny, like so much debris from a shipwreck. And I saw people I recognized from my high school years. I saw Herkamps and Schwartzes and Janelsons and Hildebrands, and I thought, oh, thank you, God, we have come home. So much kindness for our family from people we knew and people we did not yet know, enormous intentionality and care, love in the form of Build-A-Bear gift cards and prayer shawls, and one family that brought us a meal every week for over a year, and much, much more. And if you'd asked me then what I thought the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is trying to describe looked like, 
I think I probably might have said, I think it looks a little bit like Cross of Grace. We're in a happier season now. Many of you know I've married a former ELCA pastor. My children are growing. I'm not going to say anything about them because that would be humiliating. And I am really excited about getting to join you all this morning to see if we together can figure out what Jesus was talking about with all of these pearls and treasures and seeds and nets. Sidebar, how many of you honestly think that when Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood all this? And the disciples said, yes, that they were lying. I think they were lying too. Okay, so we're going to give it a shot together today. And I'm going to ask you to start by praying briefly with me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, center us. Center our hearts and our minds and our spirits and our bodies to listen for and to receive and to be changed by whatever word you may have for each one of us today. Amen. So as I've been mulling these passages over for the past few weeks, which is a privilege for those of us who guest preach and don't have to do the labor of doing this week after week, it's been sticking in my spirit that I think both of these passages are in some ways about desire. Earlier in Romans, Paul set up that gorgeous passage that, Diane, thank you for reading it so beautifully, by telling us that the Spirit has desired to adopt us, to make us God's children. And then Jesus is trying to tell us about the kingdom of God, the way it is when everything is submitted to God's good intentions for it, the way God wanted it to be, the kingdom of heaven. And he uses examples that are about desire, desire for treasure, desire for this super valuable pearl and how finding the thing that you desire above everything leads you to sell everything, to change everything for the sake of that desire. I'm not going to lie, it can feel a little awkward to talk about desire in church. We spend a lot of our time disciplining our desires, don't we? as human beings, because so often acting on our desires either ends up putting us in situations we regret or getting us into trouble. Am I right? We might think of the child who's sitting in time out because he acted on his desire for a forbidden cookie. We might think of the elder who is grieving a life spent acting on a desire for wealth. I don't need to tell you about the wildernesses into which our longings for security or belonging or love or comfort can end up leading us. And desire can also just seem kind of immature. I, I still remember this sort of progression that happened in my own life. I grew up in a mainline Protestant space, very much like this one. And then I was tricked by a good friend into attending a Pentecostal charismatic church camp with the pitch that the camp was free and there would be cute boys there. And then we're on the way down to Alabama and everyone starts talking about talking in tongues. And I'm like, what? And they're like, oh, she doesn't know. And then we weren't even allowed to sit with or walk out at the same time as the boys or talk to the cute praise team drummer because... 
purity culture, I don't know. And at the same time, I came home truly transformed by that encounter with Jesus, maybe out of fear as much as anything else. And I spent the next season of my life really immersed in leading parachurch organizations and listening to a heck of a lot of evangelical music. Well, I got to divinity school where it felt very important that we get all the answers about God exactly right, which to be clear, learning Orthodox theology is an important function of divinity school. But when you have a bunch of over-serious 20 and 30-somethings, right, who are being trained in the right answers about God, en route to being awarded something called a master of divinity, it can go off the rails a little bit. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And at that time, people were noticing that a lot of contemporary praise music was kind of like a lot of contemporary music, only just not as good. Anyone remember the 90s praise team? I I had a moment where I considered playing a South Park clip at this moment that was pointing this out in a very funny but totally not church-appropriate way. And ultimately, I decided it was way over the line. But if you like South Park, you can Google Christian Rock Hard later if you are so inclined. And if you don't like South Park, please forget I said anything. But all of us serious divinity school people started turning up our noses at any praise song that sounded a little bit like Jesus is my boyfriend, right? We tossed all the songs out that had lyrics like, I want to know you, I want to see your face, I want to hear you, you are my desire, nothing else will do, et cetera, et cetera. Some of us even pretended very hard that we had not listened to Jars of Clay in high school and had not played I Want to Fall in Love with You on repeat on our new Sony Discman that we got for our 16th birthday. Some of us. And this was not all bad, but here was the problem. We can't just toss out desire from our lives of discipleship. Because desire, like nothing else, changes us. Desire, like nothing else, changes our lives. Desire changes our lives. Think about falling in love. If you've done it, you know it changes everything. And I'm not just talking about falling in love romantically, although I am talking about that too, but I'm talking about falling in love with a rescue animal that you met when you went to volunteer for two hours because your friend asked you to at the animal shelter and you were by no means going to walk home with your new dog that now you love. I'm talking about falling in love with a newborn baby that is placed in your arms or with a child you meet through foster care. I'm talking about falling in love with a meaningful vocation that is like nothing you ever thought you would do. It changes our trajectory. It blows up our categories of practicality and all of our cost-benefit analyses. And in the church, falling in love sometimes even leads us into covenant. Falling in love with another human being is about the only thing that could call us into a lasting promise with that person. Falling in love with a baby is about the only thing that could call us into baptismal covenant for a lifetime through all the ups and downs. Falling in love with a vision of God's grace or God's justice is about the only thing that could lead us to orient a life about sharing that grace, sharing that justice 
with others. And falling in love is about recognizing something that we desire so much that we are willing to change our lives in response. Desire is the mustard seed that grows into a huge tree. Desire is the yeast that makes a small amount of dough turn into oodles of bread. Desire changes us. Desire changes us, and yet this is not enough, is it? Because what happens when our desire fails, as it will, what happens when our love grows cold, as it must, when our longing shifts, as it does, What happens when the reality of being a time-bound, sin-sick human being in a broken world means that we are suffering too much, or we are too tired, or we are too disillusioned to feel desire for God? That is when we hold to the truth that as unbelievable as it may seem, it is God's desire for us that led God to sell everything to capture the pearl of great price, which unbelievably is the adoption of you and me into God's family. God's desire for us is what led the Son of God to leave all the treasures of heaven, to come to you and to me, to tell us weird stories that we're stuck with, like this one, to offer his life on creation's behalf, to give himself over to death, to gain redemption for the world, this world that God so loved, this world that God desires, this world that God yearned over. God's love, God's desire for us led our Jesus to the cross. Like a spouse saying, no matter how hard this gets, I will not leave you. Like a teacher or a pastor or a doctor or a janitor committing to a hard vocation all over again. Like a parent saying to a struggling child, there is nothing that could make me stop loving you. Like all of these, but with no human failures and no brokenness that is too intense to bear, we hear Paul saying, what can separate us from God's love? Can anything separate us from God's desire for us? Does our suffering have the power to take us out of God's hands, away from God's love? And the answer we heard is no. No, God's desire for us, God's love for us, they are too strong. For I am convinced, he says, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor things to come, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
I thought that with these next few minutes, instead of listening to me talk a little longer, we might take a few minutes for a time of prayer. Maybe this morning you want to have desire rekindled. Maybe you want to fall back in love with God or with a vocation or with a person. Maybe you want to fall in love for the first time with the things that are in front of you to do. Or maybe as you come to this space this morning, you are too tired or you are grieving or you are hurting. And what you need is to be reminded of God's desire for you. I don't know how you come, but however you come, God sees it and it is right and God wants to meet you. And so we're gonna put some little crosses up at a couple places on the altar. If you don't wanna come up, but you'd like one, just let us know and we'll bring you one. But otherwise, feel free to come up as you're led or as you want to. But we're gonna take a few minutes to pray as Jeannie plays for us and just spend these moments in prayer and listen for what God has for you. Gracious God, we give you thanks for loving us so profoundly, for never leaving us or forsaking us, and for calling us again and again to the joy of our salvation. Accompany us as we go forward into the things that are before us. And let us be for your world a sign of your love. Amen.